The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. There for the first one as well. So, Today we are uh, continuing our series in um, what some call the Big Ten, the original Big Ten, uh, the Ten Commandments, and we will be looking at the Eighth Commandment. So if you would, please open your Bibles to Exodus 20. Uh, we'll be looking at verse 15 today. It's page 61 in the Red Bible and page 98 in the New Children's Bible. Um, we have two weeks left in the Ten Commandments, if you do your math correctly. And so on the third week, we're hoping to go into the book of First Peter, Lord willing. And I'm so excited to dive into First Peter because it is an exploration of the glory of our salvation. And so we get to dive in and see how great the salvation is that we have in Christ. And so I'm very excited about going and looking um, at that together. In Matthew 22, um, a lawyer comes up to Jesus to test Jesus. And he asks him the question, teacher, what is the greatest commandment of the law? And Jesus says to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it in form, not in priority, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus says, on these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. Indeed, this is how we see the Ten Commandments kind of sectioned out. The first four commandments focusing, focus us on loving the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. God calls us to have no other gods besides him. He calls us to not create any graven images of him, to not take his name in vain and to observe the Sabbath day and keep it holy that we might worship and enjoy him. It focuses on our vertical relationship. And then commandments five through 10 focus on our horizontal relationships, loving your neighbor as yourself. We've already read that we are to honor our father and mother, to not murder, to not commit adultery. And now today in the eighth commandment, we continue to focus on our horizontal relationships in the eighth commandment. Now, before we read it, I want to, uh, again, as we did last week, read the preface to the Ten Commandments. Because the preface of the Ten Commandments reminds us of the reason of the Ten Commandments. These Ten Commandments are given to a people who have been liberated, who have been redeemed, who have been brought out of bondage into freedom. And these Ten Commandments are given to them to remind them what it looks like to live free. In fact, the Ten Commandments are a picture of heaven, of what heaven will be like. And God is reminding them that they have been set free, so now they shall live free. So let's start. Exodus 20, we'll read verses 1 through 2, and then skip down to the 8th commandment in verse 15. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 15. You shall not steal. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider this commandment today, pray, God, that you would reveal if there is any crooked pattern in our heart and pray that you would straighten it for our joy and for your glory. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you have met my dad last week. I've only seen my father run twice in his life. 
Once was last Saturday at the Brown County Fair because he forgot his cell phone and he was running to go retrieve it from a person who had picked it up. The other time I saw my dad running was when we visited Rome. We were outside the Vatican and we were going along as a family and some kids came up to my dad and they started shoving cardboard in his face and they they wanted him to buy cardboard and, and he kept waving them off saying, no, no, I don't want any cardboard, please, no cardboard. And they kept hassling him, buy some cardboard, buy some cardboard. So finally, he just said, no, you know, and and they they left and they went away. And as they went away, my dad started to check his, and he couldn't find his wallet. Now, in that wallet was money, but also our visas. And so my dad started to run. He started to run after these kids. And my older brother, Scott, who was probably 16 or 17 at the time, saw my dad running and knew that that was a scary sight and that something must be wrong. And so my brother, Scott, took off and he found out that my dad's wallet had been stolen. So my brother goes up to these kids. Where's my dad's wallet? And they're like, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't know. And my brother, this is amazing. He saw some teenage kids sitting off to the side in this busy square looking upon this situation. And so my brother runs over to this guy and he says, where is the wallet? And the, the kid responds, no speaking glass, no speaking glass, no speaking glass. And my brothers keep hassling him. And so finally, my brother takes this teenage kid, flips him over his shoulder onto the ground, holds his arm up, reaches down into his armpit and pulls out my dad's wallet victoriously. That is a true story. And if it wasn't true, I wouldn't be standing here today. I'd still be in Rome. So I'm so glad (laughs) that somehow my brother knew that my dad's wallet was in this kid's armpit. How did you know? I have no idea. I'm curious, by a show of hands, how many of you have ever had something stolen? I'm curious, whether it be a bike or a laptop or your identity Okay, a lot of you have. Now let me ask you this question. In 2015, so what month is it? It's August in the past eight months. How many of you have stolen something? Repentance is good for the soul. (laughs) Anyone's mass confessing? Yay, we have someone confessing. Anyone else? 90% of Christians claim that they have never broken the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. And we might find this encouraging, thinking we have such righteous people in the church. But actually, I think this is a fairly discouraging statement. Because when we fully understand the Eighth Commandment, when we fully understand what it means to steal, we will start to understand that all of us are thieves. That all of us have stolen. And it may be in very acceptable ways, very respectable ways. You know, I'm guessing most of you have not carted off with a TV from a store. I mean, I'm picturing how funny that would look. You kind of going like this. I'm guessing you haven't done that or stolen somebody's wallet. Maybe you have. Those are obvious cases of theft, which God forbids. But what are those more subtle forms of theft that maybe socially we accept or we have justified in our hearts? 
And we have seared our conscience to no longer be convicted by it. Those are the forms of stealing, this respectable stealing that I want to focus in on today. And to do that, I want to focus on three main attitudes that we have towards possessions. Because our attitudes towards possessions is really the thing that, focus, that really gears us towards stealing. Now, these three attitudes uh, towards possessions are not something I created. Uh, they come from an author named Jerry Bridges. And he gives these three main attitudes towards possessions. And we're going to walk through them slowly. But just to overview, the three attitudes towards possessions is what's yours is mine and I'll take it. The second is what's mine is mine and I'll keep it. And the third attitude towards our possessions is what's mine is God's and I'll give it. So let's walk through those three attitudes towards possessions. The first is this, what's yours is mine and I'll take it. This is most commonly the thing that we think of when we think of stealing. When God says, do not steal, it's don't take something that belongs to somebody else and bring it and claim it as your own, right? And that's what we think of when we say, do not steal. And we even teach our kids to not steal. Don't steal this kid's Legos. Don't steal this kid's lunch. Don't steal something that is not yours. And we would tell our kids, stealing is wrong. It's wrong to steal and take someone else's property. But what about you and me? What are maybe some ways that we steal? Some subtle ways, maybe some socially acceptable ways that we steal. Well, to be honest with you, with the invention of the internet, stealing has never been so easy. And preparing for this sermon this week, I was listening to one of my past professors at Covenant Seminary, and he talked about how many students a year between five and ten were caught stealing. And you're wondering, how were they caught stealing? What were they? Were they stealing Bibles? Like, what do seminary students steal? And what they were stealing was the intellectual property of other people. It's called plagiarism. They would go online and they would find something that said exactly what they wanted to say. And so they would copy it and they would paste it into their paper or into their sermon. And they would claim it as their own property. They wouldn't say, this comes from Jerry Bridges. They would say, this comes from me. They would claim it as their own. And it was plagiarism. It was stealing the intellectual property of another person. On the internet, you can steal a lot of things, can't you? I know in college, we stole, from, uh, we stole music all the time. It was called Napster. And we figured, you know what? As long as it's free, it must be legal because it's on the internet. And so we stole and we stole and we stole and we stole. And the Christians who didn't want to do it, we just go, legalist, you know, you're no fun. We're just poor college students who love music. We always have a justification for our stealing, don't we? We're so tempted to steal from individuals. Even I know for me personally, you know, when there is, there is a graphic that would fit exactly what we want to do for Awana or small groups or whatever it might be, just to steal that graphic, regardless of the copyright, and use it for our purposes, knowing that nobody else outside this congregation will probably know. And so it is so extremely easy to steal. And you don't see the consequences, but you are stealing from another person. You know, it's also very easy to steal from companies. I think this is something that most of us are more tempted with. We think, you know, if we steal from a company, they're just going to absorb the cost. 
They won't even notice that it's gone. Or they won't even be affected by it. A few weeks ago, just sharing a personal story, my wife and I and our kids went to a Green Bay Bullfrogs game. And it was rained out time and time. It was rain delayed, rain delayed, rain delayed. And we had four, you know, anxious kids wanting to see the game. And so I took them to the store and there were these really cool bullfrogs hats. And dad, can we get the bullfrogs hats? No, they're used to that answer. So they're okay with it. No, it's too much money. And if I buy one for every kid, that's a lot of money. And no, we're not going to get it. And so we return to our seats, another rain delay, take the kids to the restroom. And there is a box of brand new bullfrogs hats. And so other people are taking these hats from this box that's left in the restroom. And it is so tempting to just say, everybody else is doing it. It's so tempting to just say, you know, it's a big organization. They'll absorb the costs. Or, you know, the person who left it there, it was their fault. So why should I? So it's not on me. It's on them whether these hats are gone or not. And I will tell you that it was a battle in my soul. It was a battle between a guy who loves cool things, but also wants to honor God. And God won, but it was close. It was like 51% to 49%. It was a wrestling of my soul because I am so tempted to steal And when I steal from organizations, you don't see the faces that are affected by it. You know, people steal from large companies all the time. In the 80s, there are all these, like, all these different types of stealing that were in vogue. In the 80s, you would steal cable. In the 90s, you would steal music. I don't know what it would be in 2000. People steal from the government by not reporting their earnings. We steal in all of these ways. And when we steal against companies, we justify it by saying they won't really notice. They won't really figure it out. But the reality is, we're stealing, and God forbids it. One of the most commonplace forms of theft is theft in the workplace. Analysts estimate that about 15% of a product's cost is due to what they call a theft surcharge. In other words, the product that you go to buy at the grocery store is marked up 15%, to cover the theft of employees. That might be employees who pocket some of the product for themselves, but it might also be employees that that take home stationery and all these other things from the workplace. It could also include theft of an employee using a credit card in ways that they shouldn't. It could be the theft of an employee by using the mail system at the company to mail their own personal mail so they don't have to pay for it. There are so many ways to steal from a company. It's amazing. One report claims that about 10 times more is stolen by employees than by street crime. And yet it's a thievery that most of us just let slide by because it's just socially accepted. You know, there's another way that we steal from our companies. And it's when we steal time. In 2015, it was estimated that March Madness cost employers $1.9 billion in lost revenue. We steal from our employee, especially if we're hourly, but we steal from our employee when we do not serve the Lord in our workplace with all of our energy and all of our strength. Because 
that time belongs to the Lord and that time belongs to our employer. And when we use it in ways that we are not supposed to, we are stealing from them and we are stealing their profits. Titus 2, 9 through 10 tells employees to be submissive to their bosses and everything, that they are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, that would be stealing, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. And so one way we violate the Eighth Commandment, one way we steal is by taking what is not ours. By taking it from individuals, by taking it from companies, by taking it from workplaces. By taking what we don't own, we're stealing. The second way we steal is a form that maybe you don't think of as much. One way to look at our possessions is what's yours is mine and I'll take it. But the second attitude is what's mine and is mine and I'll keep it. We not only steal by wrongfully taking possessions, but we also steal by wrongfully keeping possessions. You see, this commandment is not only about stealing, it's also about stewardship. And it means that we can steal simply by keeping what we earn. And we steal from God. Malachi 3 says it this way. For the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And so the question is, how are the people robbing God? How can you rob God? He doesn't have pockets. How do you rob God? He says, but you say, have we, how have we robbed you? And he says, in your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse for you are robbing me. He's not saying you're stingy. He's not saying you're robbing the priest. He said, you are robbing me. And he says, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test. I love that God says this, put me to the test in this. And it strikes me because Jesus, when he's being tempted by Satan, says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. But here the Lord's saying, test me on this. I know you don't think you can do this. Test me on this and see if I will provide. He says, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I'm guessing most of you have heard this term tithe, but if you haven't, a tithe is a tenth of your income, giving 10% of what you earn to the Lord. Now, to be honest with you, I hate talking about tithing. (laughs) I don't like it. And one reason is because it seems very Um, self-promoting, you know, it's because of the faithful giving of you all that I get paid, that Chad gets paid, that David gets paid, that Jan gets paid. And so it feels a little bit self-promoting to say tithe. But the other reason why I hate talking about it is because money is such a tremendous idol in our culture. For example, if when you hear this word tithing, you start to get defensive, You start to make excuses. Maybe you get a little warm under the collar. Do you know why that is? It's because God is starting to poke your idol. God is starting to jeopardize your idol. God is starting to take your idol out from underneath you. And you're saying, no, 
I don't want that. And so we create reasons why this doesn't apply to us, why we are the exception to this rule. Now, many people will say tithing is something that's in the Old Testament, but it's not in the New Testament. But the truth is, it is in the New Testament. Jesus reaffirms it in the New Testament. In Matthew 23, 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now, often we miss this because it's in the form of a rebuke. Jesus is rebuking them for neglecting justice and mercy and faithfulness. But even within that rebuke, he is saying that tithe that you're giving of your first fruits, it is a good thing. He is re, uh, he's recommitting everything that was spoken in the Old Testament. Time and time again in the Old Testament, it says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Produce. God gives this command at least two dozen times in the Old Testament that we are to give to the Lord our first fruits, to give a tithe, an offering to him. One pastor explained giving your first fruits in this way. He said, imagine you got paid $100 and, and you had 10 $10 bills, okay? One way to think about giving is to spend the money on your needs and your wants. And so you give $40 to rent, $20 to entertainment, $20 to the electric bill, $20 to gas, $20 to car. I haven't done the math right. But what do you have left? Something like $40. Can we just pretend? All right. I lost track. Let's say you have $20 left. $20. Did I say $20? All right. $20. You have $20 left. And with that $20, you say, I'm supposed to give a tenth of this? But that's like half. And then you become this begrudging giver if you give it all. And what God says is when you get those 10, $10 bills, give your first fruits, give the first 10 to God. Because you see, when you're giving money to the Lord, you're not, you're, you're telling with your money that he takes first place in your heart. God wants first place in all of your life. And he also wants it in your finances. I'll tell you, for me personally, many times it is hard to give financially because I am a cheap person. I love money. I love things. I love trips. I love vacations. And it's not wrong to enjoy any of those for God's glory. Please don't hear me say that. But it's hard for me because when we give our tithe, when we give to missionaries, we look at that money and we say, what could we do for ourselves with this? When you do your income tax at the end of the year and you're reporting your giving, you look at, at what you give and you said, this could have been a trip to Florida in the middle of winter. This could have fixed my car. But it belongs to the Lord. And every time we give, we give sacrificially and we give to put our idol of money to death. Kent Hughes put it best. He said it like this. He goes, every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money. Did you get that? Perpetual giving is a de-deification of money. When you give as as God calls you to do, 
You are dethroning money and possessions as your God. God does not command us to tithe because God needs the money. God calls us to tithe because money reflects who we worship. God calls us to tithe because where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. We can either worship our money as a God or we can worship God with our money. You know, I have no idea who gives what at Jacob's Well, and I'm so glad because I don't want to know. That's a heavy burden to carry. I want to minister to you free of charge. I want to be able to confront you no matter how much money you give to the church or don't give to the church. And so I don't know what you give. But if you're here today and you don't tithe, you don't give financially, I want to encourage you to step out in faith. I want you to look at your budget and say, we can't do this without cutting something, without sacrificing. But this belongs to the Lord. Step out in faith and see how the Lord provides. And maybe he will provide in miraculous ways like he does for us. He provides firewood every winter to heat our house. But he might also provide for, through your church where you might come and say, we don't have enough money to pay rent this month. And the church is able at that time to bless you and to help you with that. And so step out in faith because tithing is more than just giving your money. It is an act of faith and it is an act of worship as we are de-deifying our money. And so we steal in two ways. One is by saying, what's yours is mine and I'll take it. And the other is by saying, what's mine is mine and I'll keep it. The third attitude towards possessions is an attitude that is only possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that third attitude is to say, what's mine is God's and I'll share it. You know, it's hard to read through the Bible and not see God's heart for the poor. It comes up time and time and time again. I'll just give you two verses. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Matthew 19.21-22, Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. You know, there is this question that we need to ask. Why in the world would we give our hard-earned money away? Why would we be generous with our money? Because when we give it away, whether you're Bill Gates or whether you're you, it's a sacrifice. You're sacrificing something when you're giving away money. And so why would you give away hard-earned money? Well, there are two motivations. And the first is said in this main point, and that is ultimately, it is not your money. You know, we are kind of like financial planners. You know what a financial planner is? I think I know what it is. I'm not very good with money, but a financial planner, you give them your money, you kind of give them instructions, what you want with it, but then they oversee it and they, they deposit it in different places. They invest it in different places, trying to get you a return for your money. God has given us his money. It's called a paycheck. And he's given us his money to steward wisely, to steward as he calls us to do, to give to to his kingdom, to give to the poor, to give to the needy. And we do so knowing that it is not our money, but it is God's money. And we are investing it not for our glory, but for his glory. So the first motivation is that ultimately we recognize our money is not our money. It is all a gift from God and it all belongs to God and should be devoted for God. 
The second reason we can give our money generously and joyfully, not begrudgingly, is because we have been given everything we ever need in Jesus Christ. If you look at the story of Zacchaeus, you remember Zacchaeus, the wee little man? Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector in Jericho, and tax collectors were thieves. They would steal money from the poor. Zacchaeus would, was, was a tax collector for Romans, so maybe he was to go to a house and collect 15%, but he would go in and he would collect 20%, and then pocket the other 5% for himself. And so Zacchaeus was not a very popular man. As a matter of fact, people hated Zacchaeus because he was a white-collared thief. But Zacchaeus hears that Jesus is coming to Jericho. And he's so excited he goes to see Jesus. But because he's such a wee little man and everybody hates him, he can't get a view of Jesus. And so he climbs up a sycamore tree. And in Luke 19, 5 through 8, we read of the encounter between Jesus and Zacchaeus. We read, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully, not begrudgingly, joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He, Jesus, had gone and to be the guest of a man who is a sinner, a greedy thief. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And and if I have defrauded anyone, which he had, or anything, I restore it fourfold. What happened to this wee little man? What happened to Zacchaeus that turned him from being a taker to a giver, from being a thief to being generous with his money, from being corrupt to being just in his financial dealings? Well, what happened was that Zacchaeus got a new master, a new savior. You see, his previous master, his previous savior was money. But now his master and his savior was Jesus Christ. And he found all that he needed in Christ. Zacchaeus found in Christ what he had been searching for all his life in money. Zacchaeus had been searching for joy and delight and pleasure and satisfaction. And he had spent money and money and money trying to gain it, always ending up empty. And finally, he found the satisfaction that his money could never buy him. And it was only to be found in one place. It was to be found in Jesus Christ. And as a result, he was transformed from stealing into giving generously and joyfully and righteously. The passage continues... And in the very next verse, Jesus says something startling. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus did not earn his salvation by giving generously. But Zacchaeus proved that he had a new master, that he had a new savior, that he had a new delight. And it wasn't in money. It was in Jesus You know, we give to the things we most love, and we give joyfully. Many of you who are parents know kids cost a lot of money. Sometimes it's more joyful to give than others. But overall, you give joyfully to put clothes on their backs, to put food on the table, 
to take them to Bay Beach, to do these things because you love them. You delight in them. You rejoice in them. And so to give of your money is this great treasure of your soul. Should it be any different with God? If God is our chief joy, would he not be the one that we would joyfully give our treasure to? In Ephesians 4.28, it talks about how the gospel should transform us. And Paul says this, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. Why? So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You know, there is this deep conviction here that if you have not given Jesus your bank account, it's fair to ask the question, have you given him your heart? Because you give your heart to the things that, you give your money to the things you give your heart to. You give your money to the things you love in and delight in. And I think all of us can confess our own thievery when it comes to this matter. We can give our money generously and joyfully because we have been given everything we need in Jesus Christ. Let me end with this. Victor Hugo had a famous novel named Les Miserables. Did I say that right? Les Mis, you've heard of it. Do you know what that stands for? What's that? The Miserables, right? The Miserables. It's a story about the Miserables and who's miserable at the beginning and who's miserable at the end. And I can't go into the whole story. It's a great story. But the story is about a man named Jean Valjean. And the story begins with him being released from prison. He was in prison for stealing. And Jean Valjean goes out on the street and he's looking for a place to stay. And he goes to these different innkeepers. And none of the innkeepers will let him in because on his passport or his ID, he has this yellow mark that indicates that he, is a, that he has been in prison, that he's a criminal, that he's a thief. And so nobody will let him in. And so he spends the night on the street and he is bitter and he is angry. Until finally he comes to one house. It's the house of a bishop. And the bishop invites him in and sits with him. And he touches his hand gently and he says, You need not tell me who you are. This is not my house. It is the house of Christ. The bishop knew what's mine is God's, and I'll share it. Well, that night, Jean Valjean repaid the bishop's generosity by rising up, by going through the cupboards, and by stealing the valuable silver from the family. And then he crept off in the darkness. It seemed as if Jean Valjean could never change from being a thief. The next morning, three policemen brings Valjean back in tow. They've caught him with the silver. They're convinced of his guilt. They bring him to the bishop. And the bishop responds in a way that no one expected, especially Jean Valjean. The bishop responds saying, so here you are. I'm delighted to see you. Had you forgotten that I gave you the candlesticks as well? They're silver like the rest and worth a good 200 francs. Did you forget to take them? Jean Valjean's eyes widen. He was now staring at the old man with an expression that no words can convey. The bishop assured the police that Valjean was no thief and that the silver was a gift to him. When the policeman withdrew, the bishop gave the candlesticks to Jean Valjean, who took them speechless and trembling. And in this powerful act of grace and mercy, 
towards a man who had stolen from him. Jean Valjean, not immediately, but dramatically over time, was changed from a thief into a giver, into a generous man. He was changed and transformed because of the generosity of someone that he had betrayed. Let me ask you this question. Have you ever had anyone do that for you? Have you ever had anyone who you have betrayed, who you have stolen from, who you have wounded and hurt, extend grace to you? Has anyone ever heaped upon you a thief, grace upon grace? 2 Corinthians 8, 9 tells us, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, for your sake, he became poor. Why? So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You know, when you look at your possessions, when you look at the possessions of other people's, you can say, what's yours is mine and I'll take it. But you don't need to. Nor do you need to say, what's mine and mine is, I'll keep it. But by the grace of our Savior, you can say, what's mine is God's, and I'll give it. See, God doesn't want you just to give. He wants you to give generously and joyfully. Because Jesus, who was rich, became poor for you. He traded heaven for a stable for you. He traded the praise of angels for a hammer and a chisel of a carpenter for you. He traded the crown of glory for the crown of thorns for you. He traded heaven's throne for a Roman cross for you. Jesus gave of his life joyously, joyfully, and generously for you. Jesus became poor that you might become rich. Not financially, but in the ways your soul most desires. Rich in peace. Rich in Enjoy rich in a relationship with God. You know, as you think of Jesus' final hours, he's hanging. And who's he hanging between? Two thieves. And the question isn't whether one is a thief and one isn't a thief. The question is, how will they respond? One thief responds by cursing Jesus. The other responds by saying, don't you know who this is? And he places his trust in Christ. And Jesus says to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. For the one who cursed Christ at the cross, he was as rich as he would ever be. And for the other who put his trust in Christ, he was poor at that moment, as poor at that moment as he would ever be the rest of his life. You see today, the money that you have, the possessions you have, if you do not trust in Jesus as your Savior, this is the richest you will ever be. But if you trust in Christ as your Savior, the money that you have on this earth is the poorest you will ever be. And so the question isn't if you are a thief or not. The question is, which thief are you? Are you the thief that ridicules God and continues in his sin? Are you the thief that says, my Lord, my Savior? In which Jesus responds, today you will be with me in paradise. We can give generously, give joyfully, give sacrificially. Not stealing, not giving with a begrudging heart, but with a cheerful heart. Because it is just a shadow of all of our Savior gave for you. Let's pray.
Lord, as we think about money and things and possessions, I'll confess my hands are gripped tight on those things. And I need the gospel to free my heart to give generously to others, Lord. God, help all of us. We are all battling an idolatry of things, of possessions. Because we think it will bring us a treasure that only you can. Lord, all we have, all we need is given to us in your son, Jesus Christ. May we be satisfied by that great treasure that we might be doers of the gospel, not just in word, but in deed, sharing generously of our time, of our talent, and of our treasure to show how much you sacrificially gave to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before Jesus hung on the cross between those two thieves, he was gathered around other thieves, his disciples, one of them named Judas, which was the one that was most obviously a thief, but all had betrayed him and stolen their affection from him. And we read that as Jesus gathered around them, he broke bread and he gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup and after he gave thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then he reminds us of the riches of heaven. He says, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Our Father's kingdom, that is where the wine will flow, the celebration will happen, and the riches will be without end. If you're here today and you trust Christ with your salvation, and you trust Christ with your finances, even if you are struggling to do it, but you are wanting to do it, this is for you to nourish you in your faith, to nourish you in your generosity towards one another. If you're here today and you don't trust Christ in your salvation and you refuse to trust Christ with your finances, it's a sin that needs to be repented of. And so I encourage you to pass the elements by. Consider what it means to trust Jesus, not just with your heart, but with your whole life. And come back and be renewed and take communion with us. Pass the elements by if this is not for you. Do not eat and drink judgment on yourself, but look to what it means to trust in Christ our generous Savior. As we take and distribute, please hold and we'll partake together as one body.